You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hello, everybody. This is the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, if you have any questions about batteries or if you need a specific battery or if you need a, a battery that's easy to get or maybe a little bit more difficult to get, you need to stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. Why, hello there, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and as always, we have a really interesting podcast today. We're going to be talking with a gentleman named Scott Lyric. Now, Scott is the district biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation in Arizona and New Mexico. And we're going to be talking specifically about a project that he's been working on for about 10 years now called the Blue Water Stewardship Project. And some of the bumps that they've recently um, encountered uh, that have to do with a spotted owl or some kind of owl and uh, we're going to talk about the this this very large scale habitat project that took place down there in New Mexico now in the last couple weeks right we've talked to a guy named Jason Tarwater he's uh, the regional director of Montana Idaho and Alaska uh, from the NWTF and then we also had another episode about uh, a guy from Onyx who went out there on this steward on this land that had been managed by the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation in this big uh, project that, that that was undertook I guess you could say that's a, probably the wrong word but um, that happened and he killed the turkey on it so this is the trilogy right here this is the third part we're actually talking with the biologist that kind of organized this project we get to hear a little bit about what he does for a living how he does it and uh, talk about how the state agencies and the NWTF kind of work hand in hand to help raise money and get the ball rolling on these projects now before we get into today's uh, podcast we got to talk about Ozonics right now it's been, man, I don't even know, over 10 years uh, since I've I've had an Ozonics in the tree with me. I can remember the very first Ozonics that I ever brought in the tree with me, and it was like the size of a, a DVD player. It's pretty big, pretty heavy, and a lot's changed since then, right? They have longer battery life now. They have more efficient systems. They have quieter fans. They have, um, what else? The batteries are longer lasting, and they're putting out more ozone 
during that time. They have a variety of speeds. They have, uh, you know, a standard speed. They have a boost mode. They have a hyper boost mode. They also have the dry wash mode that you slip the unit into the dry wash bag, hit the button, walk away. And the next time you go hunt, your clothes have been cleaned with ozone, right? So I'm a huge fan of using ozone to clean my clothes and the best part about it is i can use an ozonics unit in and out of the tree right i I can use it at home to clean my clothes i can use it at home to disinfect my house get any bad odors or kill any germs or viruses that are living in my home i can also take it into the tree with me and uh help me gain a little bit of an advantage downwind if uh you know, if a curious buck or a doe comes downwind to me, uh, it works there as well. So if you want to find out more information about an Ozonics unit, go visit ozonicshunting.com. And if you want to get a free dry wash bag with a purchase of the HR300, the HR230, or the new Orion unit, enter the discount code NFC19 ozonicshunting.com go check them out and now we are getting into today's episode about turkey in new mexico and the habitat they live in with scott lyric three two one all right on the phone with me today very interesting guest mr scott lyric scott how you doing man doing great Good. First off, I want to say thanks for uh, taking time uh, out of your schedule to hop on and chat with us today. We've kind of gotten um, this this topic from three different sides. Uh, You're the biologist and we're going to we're going to be talking about that today. But we've had a podcast about the hunter who hunted the the high elevation turkey hunt in New Mexico. We have someone from the we've had someone from the um, National Wild Turkey Federation on to talk about their role in uh, the project and talk a little bit about uh, Western species of turkey. And now we're actually going to be talking with you, the wildlife biologist out of New Mexico uh, that worked on this turkey habitat product or uh, uh, project really closely with the National Wild Turkey Federation. And uh, so that's what I'm going to pick your brain about. But just for I, I forget the name of the project itself. What was it called? The Blue Water Stewardship Project. Okay, Blue Water Stewardship Project, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that here shortly. But Scott, as a biologist uh, in New Mexico, why don't you talk a little bit about your introduce yourself? Talk uh, a little bit about your role as a biologist down there. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, thank you, Dan. The um, National Wild Turkey Federation has uh, professional staff such as biologists and foresters across the country and a little over 15 years ago they hired me on to cover uh, Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, I actually when I started I had part of West Texas also but uh, I focus now on New Mexico and Arizona uh, which are pretty good sized states fifth and sixth largest states in the country but I, um, I always joke about people ask what do I do I say well I drive a truck and go to meetings <laughs> um, but what I do is I put people, projects, and money together and get good things done on the ground for for wildlife, specifically wild turkeys, but not exclusively wild turkeys. I've I've never done a single wildlife project that that benefited a single species. Everything we do out there benefits multiple species, 
And working for turkeys is actually really great because turkeys are generalists. They can almost live anywhere. They can almost eat anything. Um, almost anything you do in the woods probably will help turkeys. Um, so it's pretty flexible that way. Right. And in the last 15 years, I've done lots and lots of work with the National, uh, U.S. Forest Service, some with the Bureau of Land Management, uh, of course, the Fish and Wildlife Service also on some private land. And I've done lots of work with the game and fish agencies in both states. Okay. Those are our primary partners. There are others, um, but those are the primary ones. And, of course, our volunteers. We have fantastic volunteers across the country, including down here in the southwest. And and I think it's the best part of the country. I'm, I'm very prejudiced about it, though. Uh, it's, for the most part, dry. Uh, we have three different subspecies of turkeys in both states, the Gould's wild turkey, Merriam's wild turkeys, and Rio Grande wild turkeys. And I can work just about anywhere in the state within reason um there's certainly some some pretty desert areas out in arizona that there's never going to be turkeys um but i can work almost anywhere across the region and get some great work done with our great partners so that's what i do i put i drive my truck and go to meetings and i put people projects and money together sometimes i take that and run with it myself sometimes i put people and money and projects together and i say there y'all go y'all have fun do good things and i go on something else uh, it just all depends on the project. Okay. So your paycheck comes from the NWTF? Yes. Okay. I am and, a district biologist for the National Wild Turkey Federation. All right, cool. So, and it also sounds like you're just, uh, you're almost like a handshake. You are you are the connection between different groups and, and people. Yes. Okay. All right. So what, what agencies do you tend to work with the most, uh, state or federal? Our, my primary partner is the Forest Service. Okay. All right. And, and immediately behind that is both Arizona Game of Fish and New Mexico Game of Fish. Okay. And um, that's, that's the primaries. Okay. So talk to me how, who contacts who? Do you reach out to these agencies and say, hey, do you have any um, projects that need additional funding? Um, or do you reach out to them and say, hey, we have an idea on a project? How, how, how does the process of project creation start? It's never the same. It is always shifting. I, have, I got a phone call about um, 10 years ago. It was a Fish and Wildlife Service biologist, and she told me they had $100,000 they needed to put on the ground. What could I do to help them? And $100,000 fell in my lap. And I actually put $117,000 on the ground on private land because of that phone call. Other times I've shown up at meetings and said, hey, you just told us you had a problem. I can help you fix it. Um, so it works all, all different directions. The, the best thing about being on for so long, 15 years now, there's not many people I don't know in the in the conservation world in my states. And so my name and the NWTF's name gets put out there quite often by folks who've worked with us in the past. And if they have a new coworker or maybe a new supervisor or a new project shows up, often their their thought is, Hey, why don't we get the Turkey Federation involved in this, see what they can do? Okay. And that helps. 
and, and it's not they're not calling because I'm Scott Lyric. They're calling because I'm with the Turkey Federation, and and it's very satisfying. About three years ago, um, the for, the at the time the chief of the Forest Service gave a talk at our national convention. He said of all the partnerships across the country that the Forest Service is involved in, all of them, 40% of those are with the Turkey Federation. That was pretty impressive. 40% of all the partnerships that the Forest Service is involved in are through the National Wild Turkey Federation. Hmm. We've had a long, distinguished partnership with the U.S. Forest Service since the 1970s, and it's as strong as ever, and we do work pretty much in every state except Alaska and Hawaii with the Forest Service. Yeah. Um, except possibly Iowa. I'm not sure Iowa has a national forest, but um, if a state has national forest in it, there's a pretty good chance that Turkey Federation is working at some level okay. in, that, in that state. Yeah, Iowa doesn't. I don't think we have any national forest. We have national monuments, but we don't have any right. ne- necessarily any national forest. Now, right. what does your checklist look like? If you're going to, you know, if, if either money's given to you or the NWTF is going to give money to a project, what are some certain things that have to happen in order for you guys to work with this project or agree to work on a project? Well, it has to be a good project. That's the first step. It doesn't necessarily have to be 100% focused toward turkeys, although that helps. Um, other funding available. Nothing gets done anymore in the conservation world with one source, one partner, one source of funding. Everything is a partnership. It's not unusual to go and have a project and before it's over with, you have three to 15 different partners involved at some level. Right. And that makes it very strong and Projects don't get multiple funding partners like that unless they are good projects. Okay. So the less than great projects, for whatever reason, maybe they're just not quite ready yet. Maybe they need to wait a year or two to get everything lined up. But the ones that aren't aren't so great certainly have potential to get there. Um, but I got tired of doing small projects. Let's do this. It's going to help, you know, 100 acres or four or 500 acres. I like doing those projects that are going out five, six, 10,000 acres or bigger, large projects. Um, those are the ones that are real satisfying for me. Okay. And if those are going to be done, there's going to be a lot of work that's been done before I even, sometimes before I'm even aware of the project, but certainly before the project is available to go. And that mostly pertains to the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969, NEPA. Okay. National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. The uh, basically says if federal funds are going to be used, you have to evaluate the impacts that will have those funds and that project will have on the environment not the landscape, on the environment. And uh, the largest, most intense effort of NEPA is what's called an environmental impact statement. You don't see environmental impact statements that are 15 pages long. You see them that are 
500 pages long, 700 pages long, big, massive documents. But there's also other levels that are not nearly as intense. And let's face it, if you're going to do a, an 80-acre timber harvest in a particular stand of trees, you already know what the effects are going to be because they did one two years ago, three years ago, eight years ago, 20 years ago. It's not something brand new, so it's not, not as difficult. Endangered species come into play often with NEPA. Um, NEPA gets is is put a lot of, kept a lot of biologists in, employed through the years, not just wildlife biologists either. But um, NEPA is one of the big ones, and it's an expensive process to have done, but it's extremely important because if NEPA is not done and everything's not approved all the way through the public comment period. There's no reason to get too excited about putting money into a project because it may not happen. So, but once NEPA is cleared, everybody's had their say, everybody's approved it, signed off on it, it's ready to go. That's when I really get more excited about a project and we're going to be able to do some work on the ground. Right. So, what kind of roadblocks, other than you know paperwork, do you guys hit along the way that either stop a project from you know, gaining traction or stopping it while it's in progress or, or, or keeping one from even happening in the first place? Well, that's interesting you asked that question because I have a great example right now, and it include, it involves this blue water stewardship. Okay. And other projects. Part of the NEPA process is public comments. And I don't, I have not read the, the, the act in many years, but I don't believe it says if you have 98% of people think you should do option A, it doesn't say you have to do option A. But if you if you had 50% or even 10% of people that said you need to do option A and you decide to do option B or C or D, those people that wanted you to do option A may be not very happy about that. Mm-hmm. They actually may take advantage of our wonderful democratic system in the United States and sue your sue your butt in court. Okay. And not, not suing me or Turkey Federation, but they like to sue the federal government, most notably the Forest Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it seems like about 2013, about seven years ago, a group filed suit against the Forest Service because of issues revolving revolving around the Mexican spotted owl, a federally threatened species, not endangered, but threatened. It occurs throughout the Southwest and upper elevations, probably into Southern Utah, Southern Colorado, but mostly Arizona, New Mexico, a little bit of West Texas. And um, I never knew about that lawsuit, but on September 11th of 2019, six years later, we got word the judge filed uh, filed a motion or made a decision. I'm sorry. The judge made a decision and uh, it impacted six of the 11 national forests in Arizona and New Mexico. All the New Mexico forests and one in Arizona. And the judge's decision was there would be no more cutting of trees on the national forest. Period. No exceptions. Well, at that, at that day and time, no exceptions. Okay. So a group of and, people who loved owls or 
they really had this this passion for owls. They said, we think it's a travesty that they're cutting down trees in a national forest. We're going to sue the federal government and try to prohibit any timber harvest from these national forests. And the judge said, I agree with you. No more timber harvest. On five national forests in New Mexico and one in Arizona because okay. they had not yet finished their paperwork. Okay. Now, I don't, I did read, I did read the finding of the judge. I, I It's been months now, but that was basically, and I never did read the lawsuit filed in 2013, but that was the gist of it. You know, we don't, we don't think that these harvest of trees is, is beneficial to the Mexican spotted owl. In fact, we probably think it's detrimental to the spotted owl. And we think it should be stopped. And and I know it was probably more detailed than that, but that was the gist of it. So the um, the judge says stop all harvest. And of course, you can't just call a, your logger on the phone and say huh, shut her down and go home because, well, he may be right in the middle of a tree coming down, and there are safety issues, and you can't just abandon your project in the forest because there may be erosion issues or safety issues, you name it. So. We did get a little bit of a, a very short time to say, all right, stop actually cutting, start start the process of, of shutting down. You got a few days and logging timber harvest treatments, what I call them, treatments of the of the stand of trees, we're thinning them out, come to a screeching halt. As you can imagine, the loggers weren't really excited about it, the sawmill not very excited about it. And on a side note, there was a lot of other people that were not very excited about it because the judge pretty much followed the law, the, the lawsuit request. And in the mo- in the decision basically said, you can't cut firewood, you can't cut Christmas trees. And there's still a lot of people in northern New Mexico that use firewood for not only heating their house in the winter, but also cooking. If you can imagine that, there's still a lot of people that use firewood for cooking. Okay. And early September, mid-September, you know, some people are starting to think about Christmas trees. And um, there's still a lot of people that cut your Christmas tree. And the real funny part, ironic, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Every year there's a capital Christmas tree harvested off of National Forest. It goes to the capital. And it's not just a, hey, y'all go cut us a tree and send it. It's, It's massive amount of work involved that tree is harvested put on a truck and then it's it's uh driven around the west for school kids to see it well i say the west it's driven around for communities to see it and then it makes its way to washington dc and is put up in the capitol under a huge ceremony and the capitol christmas tree this past year was coming from new mexico so the judge's ruling basically said no christmas trees no firewood and no treatments or logging and um, the kickback started coming pretty fast, and the and the folks that, that filed the lawsuit went, uh-oh, we're going to make a lot of people mad that we didn't want to make mad. So they asked the judge to exempt firewood and, and Christmas tree cutting. And to be honest, most of that activity takes place outside of spotted owl habitat. But that's what happens when you don't, watch all your P's and Q's and make sure everything is taken care of, you can get decisions that have far-reaching impacts far beyond what you intended. Um, 
but it shut our blue water stewardship project down. Okay. And were were there any were there any biologists on the other side of that of that uh, a lawsuit that made that claim, or was it just a bunch of regular people saying, "Hey, you know, we love owls, and this is what we think should be done." Well, it was a group, an environmental group. Um, I'm not going to say a conservation organization because I don't believe that's the, the term that should be used for them. Um, I don't know very much about their organization. I would hope that at some level they have a biologist on staff, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not, it wasn't just like a loose coalition. It was actually a well-established environmental group. And the interesting thing is the blue water stewardship project takes place in the Zuni mountains uh, out about a hundred miles west of Albuquerque. And there's two main drainages in the Zuni mountains. One goes to the west of the continental divide and one comes to the east. And the eastern portion is the blue water stewardship, the blue water drainage. And there are spotted owls in the mountain range. Okay. And this may not be a hundred percent accurate, but I think it, it covers the general idea when they, drew the boundaries of the project, they used basically the entire eastern drainage of the forest and said, here's our project site. Now, then they, so that was defined as the project site, the entire eastern drainage. So then they said, let's, let's draw circles around these areas that we're not going to touch because they're spotted owl habitat. We're going to exclude them. We're not working there. We're going to work in other places where the trees are too thick it's extremely dangerous for fire hazard. If a fire gets started in there, it's going to hit the crown. It's going to burn the entire forest down. Not good. But if we can work in these areas that are within the project boundary, but not inside spotted owl habitat, we can do some real good. Well, since the project boundary is so large and it includes spotted owl habitat, the judge saw that and said, well, it's in spotted owl habitat. Nobody was able to, maybe not even aware of the of the fact he was looking at this, but nobody was able to, to justify or, or convince anybody, whatever it was, to say, yes, this whole project area is large, but the actual work is not taking place within spotted owl habitat. It's outside of owl's habitat. Too late, judgment came down, shut it down. Had the project already um, started at this point? We started this project in 2010. It's been oh. going for 10 years. Okay. Okay. Yes. All right. We did have a, for the first two years, two and a half years, we had a, we had a shutdown that was related to some not non, it, it was industry stuff. We had a, we had a contractor pulled out and we didn't have a sawmill to go to. And we got all that worked out. And since about 2012, we've been going strong ever since. All we right. would have shutdowns in the winter for too much snow Maybe in the spring, too much mud. Early summer, it's too dry, fire conditions. But for the most part, since 2012 through 2019, we were going strong. Man, that's a large and, time. That's a large time frame and a large project, large scope. You know what I mean? Was the um, it wasn't the largest stewardship project ever involved, but it was the largest one the Turkey Federation had ever been involved in, in acres and money and time. Okay. And uh, a very neat project you go up there and, and you look at a dog hair thicket you can't you can't look through it much mess walk through it 
and all the, a lot of the trees are less than six inches in diameter. And they may be 10 or 12, 15 feet tall, or maybe even 30 feet tall, but if they're six inches in diameter, they're not much more than a weed, if you will. Or what you would like to have, instead of having a thousand of those trees per acre, it would be nice to have about 20 trees per acre that were 25 or 30 inches in diameter. Nice big trees. It would be even nicer if you could have clumps of trees that were 8 inches, 14 inches, 17 inches, 18 inches, 24 inches, 32, I mean, different sizes, all in a clump. That's, that's natural a lot of times. It allows squirrels to go from branch to branch in different trees. It's good hunting area for northern goshawks, which eat squirrels, those abert squirrels, tassel squirrels. It's good for not only grazing, but it's great for elk and mule deer and many, many species of birds and lizards, mice. Um, it's fantastic habitat. And we don't have enough of that. So we're trying trying to get back to that. And it's also a lot easier to manage fire in those areas. You get one of those stands that has a bunch of six inch trees and a thousand of them per acre. If a fire gets in there, there's nothing you can do about that. It's too dangerous to get in there and fight it. Okay. And if we have a catastrophic fire, then the watershed is endangered. And a fire endangers communities. But more importantly to me, uh, in addition to that, is the watershed health. And out west, the watersheds of almost the entire western United States are the national forest on mountaintops. The mountains catch more snow, they catch more rain. A healthy forest helps maintain that water cycle. That water goes into the ground, surfaces at springs, rivers, creeks, lakes, what have you, goes downstream, and lo and behold, that big city down there gets to use some water. It's the model that's, that's all over the Western US. Yeah. But if the forest burns down, or is so darn thick, the water cycle's not intact. And when your watershed's not healthy, nothing is healthy. Okay. Let me ask you this. I, I, I feel like we need to back up a little bit and, and talk about this project, right? What was the, when, when you guys started this project or, you know, 10 years ago when it, it uh, started taking place or you guys started talking about it, what was the scope uh, how many acres, you know, we mentioned that oh, it, yeah. it covers all this drainage and stuff. So how did this project come to be and what was the scope and the goal or the objective behind this project? Yeah, sorry, I got kind of off, off base here for a minute, but um, I got a phone call from the U.S. Forest Service, gentleman I'd never met before, but somebody had said, call the Turkey Federation. And asked me to come to a meeting in Albuquerque and I got up there and I met all these great people and it was also a logger involved in the meeting and we discussed this project it was a thousand nine hundred ninety seven acres basically a thousand acres and they had five hundred thousand dollars and they wanted to start with that and I thought man this is a great project I'd like to actually go out and, leave and see it so when the meeting was over the logger and I drove a hundred miles 
and went out and saw the project site. And I had some folks that were supporting me, of course, at our headquarters. And we started putting this together. We found some money on our side. You have to have match money. It's not just all Forest Service money. You have to have money from non-federal sources. We had some funding available for that. Um, it's a 20% match. So out of 500000 we had to have um, $100,000. I did my math right just now. And um, so that turns into a $600,000 project. And the beauty of this one is that as more money, not as more money, as, as we did more work and demonstrated that, hey, this is going to be a good one. This is viable. This is a good project. Other agencies looked around and go, hey, here's a half a million dollars. You want to do some more acres? Do some more acres. So we started at 997 acres, half a million dollars in 2010. By 2012, we were on the ground hitting it, running, and it just increased more and more and more federal funding. And we got a lot of funding from the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. They've been tremendous partners. And then the sawmill, the family that owns the sawmill, has been providing a lot of support also. And we are now close to $12 million of funding, and we have funding in the agreement to pay for another, I think it's another five, 5,500 to 6,000 acres on top of the nearly 10,000 we've done. And it's all because the project has been so successful. And it's nice when people look at your project and go, wow, y'all did a good job there. Y'all wanna do some more? And yet also the Forest Service, bless their heart, they're fantastic, fine people. Not only did they have the, the paperwork in place to do those first 997 acres, they had the paperwork in place to do 25,000 acres. So as money became available, we add money, which increases the amount of acres you can treat, and we just continue to go and go and go. So it sounds like the funding really snowballed, right? Yeah. When Is this like word of mouth, or did – uh, did you guys reach out to more people looking for more funding or was it like, well, if the, if the NWTF is going to be a part of it, man, I want to be a part of it. Here's money. We get that sometimes this one, it was, and it, it was kind of, it's kind of odd that you asked if it was word of mouth because it doesn't seem like that would be how it would happen, but that's basically what it was. You're talking to somebody and he goes, Hey, I'm, I'm talking to game and fish biologist, habitat biologist. And he goes, Hey, I talked to the forest service the other day. He told me about all this great stuff y'all are doing. We want to put some money into that. Fantastic. And then you get a group, you know, uh, over there looking at it and go, wow, we wanted to work in that country for a long time. Can we throw some money in there? Yes. And it just snowballs. And, and I think that's an appropriate uh, description of it. It snowballs. Success breeds success. Right. And, I've never had a project that failed that people want to put more money into. It, you know, that doesn't work. But if you have a project that is very successful, it sure catches everybody's eye. Yeah. My my big boss in, at our headquarters has been in the past testifying before Congress and has mentioned this project by name. You know, so those congressional committees know about these. 
the congressional delegation for the state knows about these. And as much as anything, they know about them because the sawmill employs around 50 people. And the loggers, we've had two loggers at a time mostly, have, have supported another 10 to 15 jobs. So you're looking at 60, 60 to 65 jobs in an area of New Mexico, which is already a poor state, but in an area of New Mexico that's even more economically depressed. And we were pumping millions of dollars a year into that community and providing jobs for 40 or 50 families in that community that needed every job they could have. And to me, that was one of the big successes of this project was that we were supporting local jobs. These were people that were not showing up from somewhere else across the country, doing their work, getting their money and going home. These were people that lived and worked in those communities that were making money from that project at the same time, increasing the health of the forest, increasing the viability and health of the watershed. And it all comes full circle. You're doing great work on the ground. It's supporting the economy and you're, you're dedicating all that work toward making less fire danger and more available water and long-term recreational opportunities, which include hunting, fishing, hiking, biking, auto tours, whatever you want. And some people don't like to hear this, but also increases the amount of forage on the ground. And the guy that has the grazing permit, he might be able to put another couple head of cattle on there now and make a little bit more money on his pocket too. Yeah. So it, it's all tied together. It's, it's very successful. And when it came to a screeching halt on September 11th of 2019 with that federal court judgment, it was like getting your legs knocked out from under you. Man. Yeah. So, and, and that, so that lawsuit isn't just, it's that environmental agency that you, that you talked about. It didn't just impact a tree falling in the forest. It impacted hundreds of people financially, just like some average Joe working at a sawmill as well. Yep. Okay. And, and the loggers and the sawmill owners, they, if they need something repaired, they go down to the local parts store yep. Yep. and get parts. They go to the local hardware store. The folks that are working those jobs, when they get their paycheck, they go to the local grocery store. They go to the local gas station, restaurants, everything. It, it was a boom to the economy of that town. And the other thing, if you're going to go across the Continental Divide on the western side of the Zuni Mountains, there's a drainage that runs out of there and goes into Arizona, and there's an endangered not threatened like the spotted owl, but endangered fish that lives in that stream. It is found nowhere else in the world. I don't know how many of them there are. There may be thousands of them. There may be hundreds. I don't know. But there's, regardless, I think the main reason they're endangered is because that stream is the only place in the world that they occur. And if we are not able to treat the headwaters of that drainage and reduce the fire danger, there is a chance, and I hope it doesn't happen. I truly don't. Uh, there's a chance that if that drainage burns at the headwaters, that that stream will be completely filled with silt and ash, and they'll never see that fish again. It will be gone from the face of the earth. Hmm. And, but by God, they might save a spotted owl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which can fly away and, yeah. and land in a different tree. Um, the fish are kind of stuck. I, I didn't study fish when I went in college. I, I studied wildlife, 
Um, I, I don't know a lot about fish, but I do know they need water. Right. And, and, and at least I know that much, but if, if that water is full of, of silt and ash, nothing does well in there. So it, it's all tied together. Nothing of it stands alone. And you can look at it from the human side and think how terrible it is that 50 or 60 people are losing their jobs. Some already have. Or you can you know, look at it just from the ecological side and, and watershed health and, and forage and, and forest health and and all the other species that are impacted. And um, I truly, well, I was going to say it true, I truly believe it. It seems to me that some of these environmental groups really don't care about anything else other than you really shouldn't cut a tree down. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that way trees grow back. I'm, I don't ever want to see somebody cut a big, giant, mature, fantastic tree. But when you have nothing but dog hair thickets that you can't even walk through, that's not, those aren't trees. Those are, those are weeds. Yeah. And just like mowing your lawn and tending your garden, we have got to manage the forest and the blue water stewardship was not only the largest stewardship project NWTF has been involved in and the largest stewardship project that has been going, the largest conservation project, forest management project in New Mexico, but it was so important for the health of that land. And um, I hope that we can come to an agreement. I say we collectively, everybody involved can come to an agreement and um, the judge can sign off on it at some point. I don't know when that, that may happen. I don't dally around with federal judge and federal courts and lawyers and stuff, but we're shut down right now, Dan, and it, it's kind of painful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel you. So kind of getting back to the objective, I mean, was this to just clear out the overgrowth, the deadfall, the make make it less of a fire hazard or what was there any other underlying uh, objectives to this project the bigger biggest objectives were to reduce fire danger so you could either put prescribed fire in there and manage it well or if a wildfire started you could you could manage it so it would not devastate tens of thousands of acres yeah and then that directly relates to the second objective, main objective, was to, to restore and manage the, the health of the watershed. Okay. Those were the two primary objectives. Okay. And they're tied together. You can't really do one without the other. Right. So it wasn't, it's not like, hey, what can we do to maximize wild turkey habitat? It, this is just, this nope. is this is much larger than that. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, this was not about hunting. It wasn't about, you know, turkeys or just elk. It was it was truly about forest health, forest management, watershed health. And when they decided that a stewardship project was the, the vehicle to use, you, you can't just do a, a timber sale. Timber sales just don't happen very much anymore. Yeah. Um, in the old days, a logger or a sawmill would come to the national forest and say, Hey, we'd like to buy 10 million board feet of logs, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And we will pay you this much. And the forest services say, well, no, we have that. And we have that. Those acres are right over here. 
and they'd make a deal, and the sawmill or the logger would pay the Forest Service for those trees. And they'd go in there, and they'd, they'd, if they had to, they'd put a few new roads in, whatever needed to be done, and they'd cut those logs, harvest them, and move them out, and then they would close up the unit, whatever was was required, and go down the road. But this, the market for lumber has bottomed out in this country. Some of it didn't bottom out till the 20, 2008 um recession and the housing bust but that's that was the last straw i can't remember last time i went and bought a piece of lumber myself yeah um i just don't need to but this whole the whole country was built there was cities in in the west that were built with timber from above on the mountainside Mm -hmm. and you just don't need that much timber anymore for whatever reason yeah Uh, a lot of things are being built with metal studs or whatever but um so the market is terrible. So you don't have loggers and sawmills basically come to the national forest and say, we need 10 million board feet. They, they don't need that anymore. The mills that are going strong in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of them are cutting on private land and industry land. So now you have these stands of trees coupled with the fact that since Smokey Bear showed up in the 1940s, um, Let's put, or even before that, let's put every fire out. You know, it seemed yeah. like for for decades the the whole country was scared of smoke. Um, let's let's put every fire out that we have to that we can, and so that fuel trees, if you will, that fuel built up in the forest to unhealthy levels, and now we're paying the price for that. So and now instead of and I need to be real careful here. I don't like. I want to make it sound terrible. But in, instead of the Forest Service being able to be paid for the lumber or the timber, we have to pay someone to take it out. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So and the so now you guys the, need now hey, you guys need more budget. Yes. So, and the idea behind stewardship is you take that material, those logs, off the project and sell them at a profit, and you put that money back into the project so it pays for itself. And that works in the southeastern United States and other places uh, where there's a good market for either lumber or pulp or whatever. Um, Seems like there might be a good market for pulp right now. Somebody's making toilet paper <laughs> this day and age. But... Uh, not so much for the, the timber trees in the West. Right. Um, but yet, what's it going to cost if you have to pour a thousand firefighters into that effort to, to stop that fire? Yeah. Yeah. There was a, this may not mean a lot to you, but as an example, in late May, Memorial, Memorial Day weekend in May of 2011, a campfire was left unattended in Arizona. And it started a fire, and it burned for 30 days, and it burned 538,000 acres. It was called the Wallow Fire. Okay. It burned for 30 days, 538,000 acres. They put over 1,000 people on that fire fighting it. It cost about 100 to $115 million to suppress that fire total up front. Not, not up front, but at the time and, and immediately after. 
And now those communities that are around that area have been depressed economically because there's not as many people want to come up and, and picnic in the black trees of the burned forest. Yep. So is there a butt to that story though? I mean, yes. you're, you're sitting here so, and you're telling me that, you know, fire, you know, and I, we, we hear it all the time, right? Fire is good for nature, right? It cleans the, the forest. Yep. So what's the butt to that story? Well, if we can get in there with a stewardship project or any other forest management project or restoration project and thin those trees, and then when that fire starts, it doesn't burn for 30 days and 538,000 acres. It burns for two weeks maybe or a week, and it burns 1,500 acres slowly. And next year, those 1,500 acres look fantastic. And you didn't spend $100 million on it. Yeah. Yeah. We've spent less than $12 million on this project to prevent something like that from happening. And now we can't do it. Yeah. And... I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I can understand that 12 million is a whole lot less than a hundred million. Plus the fact that you're supporting local jobs in the local community over long term, And those firefighter jobs, those guys bless their heart. Those men and women that fight fires, they work extremely hard. I have nothing but respect for those folks, but all of those thousand people that came in and fought that fire, I bet 950 of them went out of state back home and took all that money with them. Yeah. So, whole area got economically depressed and it continues to be that way and almost all that hundred million dollars left yeah so it's a vicious cycle i told this story to the forest service once the chief even and everybody's head was bobbing up and down and, and the, the question that came after was who, who do we need to tell about this i said i guess the senate since they set your budget yeah and and i don't i don't want to get political here but our decision makers and politicians in Washington, and I'm talking about the Senate mostly and the House, they um, they don't seem to overall, total to all of them, have any desire to spend money on the national force until they're smoking the air. Yeah. Too late. If they're smoking the air, it's too late. Yeah. And when they're smoking the air, they seem to have, they open the bank up, you can take as much as you want. But, oh, we can't give you a fraction of that next year to, to help prevent another. Yeah. It sounds like it, it, uh, it burned 500, it, yeah, it burned 500,000 acres because 500,000 acres actually needed to be burnt from, from, from a nature standpoint. You know what I mean? That, um, there were close to a hundred spotted owl pairs in that hundred five hundred thousand acres that got displaced and some of them got lost. And so if a, if an environmental group, in my opinion, wants to stop all this work because they are, they want to save the owls and then the whole stand of trees burns to the ground, you didn't save any owls. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, they have a very different perspective on life than I do, or maybe they'd say I have a different one than they do, but uh, it's, it's we can't just not manage our prop, our lands because we have impacted them too much over the last 300 years as humans in North America. We can't just say they'll do it, they'll do it on their own. Yeah. And, 
And bless your heart, if you have enough money to build a house in the middle of the National Forest on a half acre of private land, good for you. But you know what? It's going to burn down when the forest burns. Yeah. Not if it burns, when it burns. Cause, and that's another problem. We have so many people that live on the edge of forest and inside forest on private end holdings that, and, and small communities, too, that think if a fire starts, they're going to put it out and protect us when uh, – I'm sorry, I don't think it's the Forest Service's responsibility to protect your half-acre lot with your house on it that you are not willing to even trim the trees around your house on. So lots lots of things in play, lots of social issues and environmental issues all at once. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded. It sounds like the, the 500,000 acres that were burnt needed to be burnt. Like Some it, of it did. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, but how great was it that on this stewardship project, Blue Water, Jason and Dylan got up there last year and set up camp. And the next morning, right where the loggers near near where the loggers are working, they get a gobbler going, and they call him in, and Dylan shoots him and yep. kills him right there, almost nine thousand feet. Yep. Um, on the project site where I had been coming to to check the logging operation for for weeks, and um, that was just too cool. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about uh, what we've seen over the last 10 years. Like Since you started this project, what what have been the benefits? What have you seen? I mean, have you seen um, a resurgence of a specific bird or uh, mammal or turkey move into this area? Or just like talk about what good has happened? Well, it's... It's easy to, for me to talk about, you know, small little mammals or small birds. You know, I can look at the birds and I know what they are and, and all that. But the, the one that really stands out to me is when I talk to the loggers and they say, you know, when we started on this project four years ago, we hardly ever saw an elk. We never saw a mule deer and occasionally we'd see a turkey. And he says, now when we come to work every morning, we have to wait for the elk to cross the road. Deer are everywhere. And we run into turkeys every single day. Now, those are the obvious animals, and it's, it's easy to, to spot those. But to me, that stands out tremendously. And it never failed when I, I would come up there to look at the project site and talk to the loggers without me even asking, oh, my God, you should have seen all the turkeys we ran into yesterday. There must have been 40 of them. And... And then you ask them, they said, oh, we, we never saw turkey here before we were starting to cut. So there has been a resurgence. I asked the district ranger one time. We were all up at a meeting. There was probably about 25 or 30 of us. And just before we were going to go to another spot, the cattle grazing permittee had driven up, and, and he went over to talk to him. And when he came back, I said, are they happy with this project? And he said, oh, my gosh, they're beside themselves happy because there's more grass, more sunlight hitting the ground now, more snow gets on the ground. A lot of times snow gets hung up in the trees. It never hits the ground. It evaporates, and that snow, the snow that hung up in that tree evaporates, and that moisture never got to the ground. And that's one thing that happens when trees are too thick. And that's a lesson I had to learn. I had never, no idea that that happened as much as it did on these thick forests. So, so you're seeing more water hit, more water and sunlight get on the ground. You're seeing more grazing for cattle. And they're not being grazed improperly. They're, they're being grazed the right way. Um, 
and you're seeing more game animals. And I know for one, I've seen more small birds and um, lizards. I don't keep track of mice and rats, but those are a little difficult to keep track of. But the wildlife overall has increased dramatically in those 10 years we've been working up there. And the Forest Service has been allowed, not been allowed, they've been able to now, since there's more ground cover, grass basically, go in there at the appropriate time and light prescribed fires, which result in even more ground cover the next year. So it's just been a win-win all the way around. That's awesome. That's awesome. So obviously there's been some obstacles and uh, one big obstacle that's still in the process of uh, have, have they figured out when or if they're going to be able to get this? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like the people who are, um, who have filed this lawsuit are starting to see that maybe they filed the lawsuit pre like without thought you know what I mean? And, uh, do you, have you been in talks? Well, with no, them? I don't, I, I don't think they can, I don't think that's their mindset. I don't think they think that way at all. Okay. How do they think? Well, you might think that way, but I don't, I don't believe they think that way, but I haven't been in touch with them. Okay. So is there a, is there a, a point to this? Are, are you able to see through the fog yet and say, okay, well, we can have this project back up and running in next month, the month after the month after that six months, a year. You know, I didn't come up with this phrase, but I'm going to use it. You know, they uh, they gave me my crystal ball when I started, and the first thing I did was drop it and break it. So I can't tell <laughs> the future. <laughs> but you have a federal judge in Tucson, Arizona, that made the decision, and now he's been presented with alternatives, updates, changes, new information. That was presented on the 7th of November of 2019. Um that's almost six months ago, and we haven't heard anything from him. Um, I have no idea what kind of pressure and workload is on a federal judge these days, um, but we're at his mercy, and there's just no telling. I have no idea how to how to figure out when we might hear anything. Huh. Well, that sucks. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So uh... It does. The good thing is we have gotten almost 10,000 acres cut, treated. I don't want to make it sound. This is not a logging operation. It was a restoration management project, restoration project. And I have a friend that went up there, and he didn't hunt where we cut, but he hunted in that mountain range, and he killed a bird the first few days of the season. And and they will, the wildlife is still there. They're going to be okay. One of the um, outcomes of this shut down with with the coronavirus which i'm calling the um the great hunkering down of 2020 um (laughs) is there's probably less people in the woods and so far knock on wood we have not had a major wildfire going anywhere in the western u.s that would require 100 200 600 a thousand firefighters to descend upon it while we're trying to stay away from each other so that's been a blessing but we do have people out in the woods hunting turkeys and uh, I fully expect we're going to have a bunch of folks out chasing deer and elk in the fall too. So yeah, yeah, those are uh, those are all good things. Um, unfortunately, this uh, this project has been put to a you know has been set to a halt. Are is this a project that ever ends, or is it just a continue? Is it just continuous? 
You know, it, it is ending, and regardless of this junk, injunction or not, um, when this project started, stewardship projects were allowed to run for 10 years. And about, I don't know if it's been three years, three years ago or so, new legislation or new authorities were in place that they can run for 20 years now. But we had already made plans to finish out the Blue Water Project at 10 years and move into the western half of the mountain range called the Puerco, Puerco uh, or the Zuni Project and continue working there. The problem, one of the problems with that is that we're getting further away from the sawmill. So it takes longer for a load of logs to get delivered to the sawmill. It takes more, it's, it's more expensive to take a load of logs, you know, another extra 30 miles one way. Um, when you add 60 miles to a truck, you know, you don't, you don't make as many loads in a day if you have to drive 60 miles further each time um, and burn another, you know, 30 gallons of diesel or whatever it is. But um, we have enough acres that are set aside in this project that have been cleared for NEPA work, and, and we could probably go another 15 to 20 years. Yeah. So the funding's there for it. Yes. Okay. Well, and, and there's not funding for 15 more years, but there's funding for another 5,000 acres, which takes us about three years maybe. Okay. Depending on weather shutdowns. Um, but when that you keep rolling like that, then the game department says, hey, we have another $800,000. And the Forest Service says, hey, y'all are doing good. Here's another million and a half. You, you just keep that success begets success. Yeah. And um, I know a few years back when the when the Forest Service would take money from all over the country and put in the, fight, the pot to help fight fires every every summer, I can't remember if they called that withdrawal or, or fire borrowing is what they called it. They would borrow money from all the different forests around the country and put in the firefighting fund because we had a bad fire year. We need extra money. So if you hadn't spent that that $200,000 for your project, they're going to take that. About four years ago, I believe there was, at the end of the fire year, there was $6 million left in that borrowed money. And you can't really just split it evenly and send it all back because some people would get, you know, $400. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. Um, as an example, this project, the Blue Water Stewardship Project, was has been doing so well at that point that they asked for proposals. And of that $6 million, $2 million of it came to our project. Wow. That's how successful it was. There's there's money that comes out of the Washington Office of the Forest Service that, that they – I'm not certain of all the details, but they kind of hold aside and say, you know, at the end of the year, we're going to see who's really doing great work, and if they need some more money, we're going to be able to give them some more money. And, and whether that's accurate, completely accurate or not, that's basically the gist of it. And And we get money like that and different programs when the game department brings them money it's fantastic those those folks in our state game and fish department agencies are are fantastic and uh, new mexico is no exception we have some some great folks there and when they're putting sportsmen's dollars back on the ground to support these projects that will sustain long-term recreational opportunities including hunting and fishing on those acres it's it's a win-win for everybody yeah that's uh, for sure. Now, have there been any volunteer opportunities in this project? 
Unfortunately not. Um, this, this work is, um, it's basically, you know, it's, it's logging is, is the basic work. Yeah. And then road work. We're actually doing a lot of road work too. Um, and you can't just say, Oh, let's put some volunteers in this big $300,000 piece of machinery. Here's a chainsaw. (laughs) Here's a chainsaw. Have fun. (laughs) Yeah. So unfortunately this project has not been a good one for volunteers, but we certainly have lots of other opportunities for volunteers around the country. So gotcha. Gotcha. If, uh, if anybody wants to find out more information about what the, you know, NWTF is doing or this project specifically, is there a a resource or a place that we can send them so they can, uh, read into a little bit more of the details? You know, I'm almost certain there is, it's been highlighted in our magazine a few times through the years and I don't search through our website all the time, (laughs) but I know that there are sites inside of our website I, i'm going to do i'm going to try it right now and um see if i can come up with something yeah i'm i i'm almost positive that there's something there's a blog entry or uh, an article or two about the project on the uh, nwtf website so or you can just there it is i um i just in our in the search bar on our website, I typed in Blue Water, and eight results came up. And I think one of them's not, one or two of them's not really directly, but the other five are directly talking about this project. So yeah, yeah. there are there are sources there. Yes, nwtf.org. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Scott, man, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, uh, break this all down for us, share the success of this. Uh, um, of this project and talk a little bit about the obstacles. Cause I think that's, that's a big thing. Right. And I think that happens a lot all over the countries for a variety of different uh, projects where there's people getting involved in nature or, or I guess conservation that shouldn't be, you know, yes, I understand that they have a right to express their opinion, but I don't feel that, you know, obviously science, statistics, research, all those things are key in making decisions and uh, emotion, you know, emotions should probably be left out of it. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like they have, they definitely have the right to, to express themselves, but decisions should be made by biologists and by you know, by people who work in it and do the research and not courtrooms, if that makes sense. That's just my opinion. Well, it, it falls into what I think, and I have thought for a long time, and nobody and no organization is perfect. Yeah. But um, I'm certain that the Forest Service knows more about managing forests than I do. Yeah. They're the experts. And as much as I, I love the United States of America, and democracy is a fantastic thing, I don't know that democracy is the best way to manage a piece of property, a piece of land. Yeah. Um, that sounds weird. Um, I may get slapped down for saying that somewhere. To, <laughs> and and the, the whole idea behind NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act 1969, was to let everybody have the chance to comment on these projects. Yeah. And that was passed when Nixon was president. And, you know, Nixon gets a lot of stuff coming down on him for 
some things he did. And, but most of the major environmental legislation in modern times was passed during his administration. And people don't always remember that. But yeah. and, and I was almost too young to remember him. But, you know, we, we have enough knowledge now that while we don't know everything, I truly believe we know enough to not screw things up so bad they're never going to recover. Yeah. So, you know, I, as, as bad as it is, we have to pay to have this stuff have done and and then it gets shut down for for other reasons. So, And there's another or environmental group that is going to be suing the Forest Service in June about Spotted Owl. So, um, Yay. <laughs> it just continues on and on and on yeah i feel you all right man well hey i really appreciate your time thanks for doing what you do and uh, hopping on today and and chatting with us it's my my pleasure dan i appreciate the opportunity and you're very welcome and i do appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you hope i didn't ramble on too much and that wraps up another Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully everybody enjoyed this uh, trilogy, so to speak. I know Scott dropped a lot of knowledge on us about this uh, stewardship project that they were uh, doing. And I think it's awesome because when I think of turkeys and it's in my small little bubble that I live in, I think of the Midwest, the South, you know, the eastern side of the United States. And here these guys are. They're making a big difference, not only for wild turkey, but for a ton of other species that live out in the mountains and they live out west. So it's not just turkeys. It is everything, right? Any species, plants, uh, animals, birds, all that stuff. And uh, they're helping out with these projects, man. So I I love that. And I love these guys getting the opportunity to share their story. Uh, Huge shout out to Scott for taking time out of his day to check out this podcast and and drop some knowledge bombs on us huge shout out to all the partners ozonics wasp lone wolf the average conservationist and vortex optics please go out and support the companies that support this podcast uh and then you know how it works it all circles back to you and then and then and then and then i think we're done man Please go out and try to make a difference. I know right now sucks for everybody. We're either locked down. Some of us may not be working. But if you have some free time, do what you can to give back in 2020. Have a good week and we'll talk to you next time.